we have been talking about, what have we been talking about the past two sessions? This is the third session. What is it? Yeah, overall, the miracles of the Qur'an, I gave you a different word, which was Mu'ajiz al-Qur'an, Mu'ajiz al-Qur'an, meaning the thing that overpowers you. It's as if this thing intellectually overpowers you as you look more into it, look more into it. It's like, I don't know how to explain this any other way. Ya Allah, this must be from you. That's Mu'ajiz, the thing that overpowers. Now, we, the first two sessions, we, you, you mentioned, I heard it over here too, we talked about structure of the Qur'an, we talked about ring structures, we talked about how every single surah has its own unique structure, the meaning is in the middle. We even kind of played around with this idea of how is it that a man can just freestyle this kind of speech, yes? We played with that idea, just keep that in the back of your head as we're going and we're talking about this a little bit more. One thing my mother reminded me of, uh, I should have put this second, I need you to keep this in the back of your mind. I know you saw this slide three times already or two times already, but again, we have to review really quickly, just a few quick points. The first one, let's go over this one verbatim. What does this mean? It means again, you have two options. Who can remind me the two options? What's option one with the origin of this book? What's option one? Huh? Yeah, it's this man. Well, actually option one, we're gonna say it's from Allah. That's option A is this book is revealed from a, from, by Allah to the angel Gabriel salam, to Muhammad salam, and that's how we have it. That's option one. Logically, what's option two? It's a freestyle. It's a freestyle rap by this man from 7th century Arabia, Muhammad, they don't say salam, we say salam, yeah? Those are the two options. That's why this is really critical to understand it's verbatim. There's 114 surahs, did they all come down all at once? Nope, they came down piecemeal. 23 years it took. Imagine like a puzzle piece is raining down from the sky and falling into place over 23 years. That's how the Quran came down. Yeah, so keep this in mind also. That becomes extremely important to keep in the back of your mind as we're discussing today's topics, okay? Before we get into any new stuff, I don't want to review this necessarily, but this is kind of an example of what we've been talking about the past two sessions. The biggest, and I think to me the most amazing example that I showed you so far, was of Baqarah, the largest surah in the Qur'an. Um, and we talked about how all of these themes parallel each other. It's as if the themes themselves do tawaf around the Kaaba, which is mentioned in the middle of the surah. SubhanAllah, you guys remember we talked about this last time? Now, a couple of things I want to actually talk about when it comes to the ring structure of the Qur'an. I told you before that when there is structure in a book or structure in anything that Allah made, whether it's in nature or in His book, meaning the external ayat of the sun, the moon, the skies, ourselves, or the internal ayat of the book itself, um, there is bo both beauty and purpose. The beauty here I hope is clear. And to me, this stuff is, is very amazing. I remind you again that each of these blocks have their own Structures, you guys remember that conversation? Okay, but I didn't talk a lot about the purpose. My mother, my other water reminded me of a couple of things that I wanna go over. This is not for fun. I wanna be very clear. When we talk about these things, it's not fun facts you read from a tabloid about Quran. That's not what we're talking about here. I will actually be very serious for a minute right now. The Ummah, I'm gonna be very clear here. The Ummah, the Muslim nation, is going absolutely nowhere unless we get obsessed with this book. I'm using strong language here. The Ummah of Muhammad is going absolutely nowhere. We will be oppressed, killed, humiliated, colonized, occupied, etc. Until we use this book, the Quran, as our unifying thing. You understand? Unless we all collectively become more obsessed and more into this book, we aren't going anywhere. I am not telling you guys this stuff. 
and teaching you what I've learned in the past 12 or so years for fun or to make you go, ooh, ah, that's not the point. The point is we need to get re-obsessed, reacquainted with the Qur'an. And this is my, my effort to help myself and all of you to do that, inshallah, with me. I hope, I really hope that that's getting to you. A couple of specific purposes or benefits of this ring structure stuff I want to mention. Number, uh, here we go with this wild thing. Number one, knowing the structure of a surah helps you understand the point of the surah, the arguments made in the surah. So, for example, in Baqarah, the entire point of Baqarah is you have a new identity, you are Muslimin. This change of Qibla is like assigning a new capital of the Ummah. Do you, do, you, do you understand? So everything before and after that point serves the purpose of who are you? Baqarah is the constitution of, of the believer. This is who we are. Like, you know, like our, our country has the United States Constitution. This is the Ummah's constitution. New capital, new people. And here's what that means. So, meaning, again, when you understand the structure of a surah, it helps you understand the argument, the thesis of that surah. That's number one. Helps you study that surah even more. And the second thing, my mom, I can't believe I forgot this. My mom reminded me, funny enough, it's about memorizing. Memorizing becomes easier. When you know that this is how it's structured, then you just have to remember, okay, what's part one, what's part two, what's part three, so on and so forth. So even memorizing becomes even that much easier when you understand the structure of the surah. Does that make sense? Those are just some two benefits I wanted to mention about structure. We're not going to go back to, we're never looking back to this conversation unless we're talking about a specific surah. So any last questions about structure before we continue? Because we got to really continue. We have a lot of stuff today. Nothing? You sure? Okay, I'm always here if you guys do have questions about it and we can talk about it together. Okay. We are moving on and we're not talking about structure anymore. We're going to a brand new topic that I'm going to generally call precision of the Qur'an. This includes a lot of different things. You may not hear that wording from other people talking about this stuff. But what I really want to convey to you, like we basically, what we did the last two sessions is we kind of got in a helicopter. We went way, way far up, far back and looked at the Qur'an looking down. How is it structured? You know, like if you want to get a really good you know, eagle eye vision on a building, you get up in the sky and you look at the building from all corners. Now we're going to go down and look at the bricks. You understand? We're going to go way more specific and look at how are these ayat structured, not structured, how precise are they? How nuanced are their language? And to, to help you, to kind of give you a taster of how I want you to think about this, I present to you this really important ayah where Allah says, Basically, have they, not, have they not reflected on the Qur'an? Because if it was from anyone other than God, they would have found many contradictions in it, many inconsistencies in it. You understand? Like for example, and this is not to, to poke fun at other religions, we don't do that, we do not make fun of other religions. But to give you a simple example, we have like for example the Bible. The Bible, how old, according to the Bible, just as one simple example, how old is the world according to the Bible? Who, who knows? The Bible actually puts a date of how old the world is. 6,000 years. We know that to be completely false, yani that's, that's not true. And then comes the question, how does someone who created, how does the one who created the universe not know how old the earth is? You understand? That is an example of ikhtilaf, inconsistencies. Why is the master of the universe not acquainted with the universe? 
You understand? We find, this is the overall thesis, we find no such thing in the Qur'an. Not just with this natural phenomenon, but with word choice, with number choice, with if you count numbers up, with, I'm going to give you a bunch of examples inshallah, I hope I can get to them, and I want to paint this picture clear, but keep in mind, the phrase I want you to keep in mind is, you would have found, in, you would have found excuse me, contradictions in it. Again, you would have found what in it? Contradictions, inconsistencies, ikhtilaf. Yes? Okay, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We're going to jump into examples. It's going to be very rapid fire. I don't want to do two sessions of this. I was cont contemplating it. I have 24 examples to give you today. That is from various notes that I took for the past few years. I have around 50-ish examples that I wrote down in notes, like notes I need to consolidate. And from those 50, I chose these 24. Hopefully I can finish them in like an hour. And we're going to try to get through them together. It might be kind of quick. And I'll give you a break in the middle where you can ask questions if it, if it did go too fast. Okay, does that make sense? And I'm going to explain them as we go, inshallah. But I need you. Here's how I ordered it, though. In the beginning, you can half think about it and you'll get it. It's easy to appreciate. The, one, the examples in the beginning are very easy to appreciate. As we go to example 10, 20, 24, you need to be thinking. I need you paying attention. If you don't pay attention, you're not going to get it. Okay, does that make sense? Because I'm trying to bridge the Arabic gap here. All right, bismillah. We're going to start with some easy ones. Hopefully this clicker doesn't go too far too much. Okay. How long did the Quran take to be revealed? You are all, I showed you that slide three times, yo. How long did the Quran take to be revealed? 23 years. Everybody, how long? 23 years. And it came down piecemeal. Did the Prophet ﷺ, while he was reciting the Quran and revealing it, did he know how many times he said certain words? Like did, if you ask him, like, hey, how many times did you say the word ayah in Quran? Would he be, be, be like 50 something? No? No. He had no idea. No one marked it down. It wasn't until recently that we could pull Quran into like a program where we can do word searches. And people found some interesting things. And I want to share those things with you. I think there's feedback because there's two mics, guys. I mean, are we going to have three mics next time? Because that, that'll be super clear. <laughs> okay, this one. Anyway, moving on. You find some interesting things. I want to show you just a few. This isn't comprehensive. Nothing today is comprehensive. There are literally thousands of these examples. I'm showing you 20 of them. Okay, just to be clear. First example, the word dunya in Quran is repeated 115 times. And the word akhirah in Quran, the afterlife, is also repeated how many times? 115 times. Before we move on, I just want to... Ask, again, I want you to be in the right mindset with this. How do you... What would that entail? Again, if we're, gonna, if we're going to go with option B here of a man said this, how did that work exactly? Did he go, oh, three years ago in February, I said akhirah three times. So today I should say dunya four times and the next time say an extra time. How does someone think on this level over 23 years exactly? You guys understanding this? A couple more. Angels is mentioned 88 times. Devils also mentioned 88 times. I hope it's also clear that these are like the, the pairs, I guess, right? This life, afterlife, angels, devils, right? You guys understanding this? Okay, bismillah. Life, hayat, is mentioned 145 times. Death is equally mentioned 145 times. Remember when, how Allah says that we're a middle nation, we're a balanced nation? Even our book is balanced. Life and death, angels, devils. Yes, you see that? 
good deeds, as-salihat, you guys see that word often in Quran, is mentioned 167 times and to no surprise, evil deeds, also mentioned 167 times. Disbelief, kufr, is mentioned 17 times. Iman, belief, is also mentioned 17 times. I want you again, we, what is Qur'an? It's a mu'jiz, it's a thing that overpowers you mentally. When you wrestle with this in your mind, how, what explanation can you possibly come up with exactly? How did, how did someone do this? Even ignoring any other layer, just this by itself, how did this happen exactly? Is it all coincidence? Next up, Iblis. Who's Iblis? The devil, shaitan. His name is Iblis. He was given a name. His name is Iblis. Mentioned 11 times. Specif specifically seeking refuge from Iblis in the Quran, like we say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Rajim, right? That's also mentioned in equal amount of times. It's as if it's to match his name being mentioned. <laughs> and by the way, it's not like Iblis is mentioned in the next ayah, it's A'udhu Billahi Shaitan Rajim. This is all over the place, yeah? It's not like they're paired together every single time. Okay. Allah says a bunch of times, He, he commands the Prophet many, many times, 332 times. He says, uh, or He talks about um, commentary that the people around Him made. And then like, they'll say something ridiculous, the people around the Prophet And then Allah will reveal something and said, and they said this. They mentioned this. That is said 332 times. And as a response, قُلْ, the command, tell them. So they said this, tell them this. Both mentioned 332 times, subhanAllah. The word, <laughs> the, this is just, it's just nuts. The word month is mentioned 12 times. The word day, and it's singular by the way, specifically the singular, 365 times. The plural is mentioned more, or uh, mentioned a lot less actually. The word prayers, like, and by the way, I don't mean prayer, like salah, I don't mean salah, prayer, I mean prayers, plural, right? Mentioned five times. Which, what significance is that? We pray five times a day, yes? So he literally, the, multiple, the, the plural version of the word prayer mentioned five times, subhanAllah, in the book, repeated. A couple more examples with some numerical observations. You guys probably, maybe you're acquainted, it's not, it's okay if you're not. It was Surah 18, uh, Story of the Cave. That Surah, that chapter, is named after the people of the cave, the youth of the cave, that story. So a quick excerpt, we don't need to go into that story in detail for you to appreciate this. The story is very simple. These young men, their people, the, the king was trying to get them to disbelieve in Allah, trying to get them to worship idols. So they run away in the middle of the night before their execution. They go into a cave. And Allah puts them to sleep for how many years? Who knows the story? It's behind me if you don't know the story. 309 years. So Allah puts them to sleep for generations, generations. But the number of years he mentioned was how long? 309. There's a very peculiar thing that happens in the story. This isn't the whole chapter. I'm going to put it in front of you so you can appreciate the length of it too. This isn't the whole thing by the way, but or the whole... Uh, no, no, it is actually from beginning to end. This is where the story is mentioned. There's a word mentioned here that's very strange. And that word is labithu. Labithu means they remained. Okay? This word is used in other parts of Quran, but the weird thing about this is it's used six times in the story. So within these three pages, it's mentioned six times. That's a highly concentrated number of times to mention that specific word. Remember we talked about anchors? Right? When things are repeated, why are they repeated? Like asking that question. So someone asked that question. 
What is up with Labithu? So someone took the first time Labithu is mentioned. What does Labithu mean again? They remained, meaning talking about the young men sleeping in the cave. They remained, and then they remained 309 years. The, between the first time Labithu is mentioned, again, meaning they remained, and the last time Labithu is mentioned, that exact word is mentioned at the end of the story. So it both opens up the story and ends the story. 309 words in between the two. So the number of years they stayed, the beginning and end of the story is the number of years, that, the same number as the number of years that they stayed asleep, 309 years. That's impressive. I don't know how many words I just said. I've been talking for about half hour now. I can't count that. <laughs> how does someone think at this level? How does someone think at this level as in a freestyle, subhanAllah? One more, this is a really cool numerical one. I wanna kinda go quickly with these because I wanna get to my favorite stuff. This is not my favorite stuff yet. I love this one. This is so cool. Adam and Jesus You have an ayah that says, Inna You don't need to know the rest. Simple English. In Allah's eyes, as, as far as Allah is concerned, the example of Isa salam, or who was mentioned first? Sorry. Yeah, I was right. The example of Isa salam, is similar to the example of who? Adam salam. So he's comparing the two prophets. We believe in Adam and we believe in Jesus Yeah, we believe in the two. Theologically, what's being said here? It's being said, if you dare call Jesus God, because he had the virgin birth, yes? He had no father. So some people way back in the day, theologically, they took that idea so far that he has no father, and they're like, oh, God must be his father. You see how like they jumped logically way too much? Allah says, if Isa is God because he had no father, what does that make Adam? He had no father and no mother. Is he super God? How does that work? You understand like the, the argument Allah is bringing up here. But interestingly enough, Adam and Isa by name, not by like indirect, like huwa, like he or they or whatever, by name, Isa and Adam are both mentioned 25 times. So when Allah says, he says like Adam, he literally made them like each other in mention. Does that, does that make sense? So like, can you, I mean, really think about this. Even if this was one off, then someone can look at this ayah and be like, if they're like each other, why is one mentioned more? Why is one mentioned less? If they're really like each other. You see how like Allah just sealed off all arguments. You understand? Someone please get the door for him because he's, he's definitely nervous and scared. Okay. It's not over yet though. Good. Listen, back up here. It's not that, okay, not that interesting. I'm hopefully more interesting up here, inshallah. Okay. <laughs> or this stuff is more interesting, I should say. You see how Adam and Isa are both mentioned here in this ayah? I'll point to the English, to be fair. Adam and, Isa, and Jesus, you see that? In this ayah, if you count the times before this ayah is mentioned, Adam and Isa was mentioned six times, and Isa and Isa was also mentioned six times. This is both the seventh time they're mentioned in the whole book, from beginning to end. So even the ayah matches up their mention in, in count, subhanAllah. That's pretty remarkable. I want to go quickly into a few others. Any questions about these though before I move on? Because I do have a bunch of others I want to talk about. Can I move on? Okay. There are also a little bit of natural observations that we see. I will, a quick tidbit. So you guys have probably heard of scientific miracles of the Quran. I do want to be completely fair here that there were people in the last 50 years with very low religious self-esteem that tried extra hard to insert things in Quran that were not true. And we don't need that. 
Quran is incredible and a miracle in and of itself. We don't need it to match other people's beliefs and thoughts for it to be amazing. We don't need anybody else for Quran to be amazing. However, that is not, uh, that is not to say that the Quran does not mention some things that are pretty inexplicable. I'm, I chose a few quick examples to share with you, inshallah, okay? One, Allah just casually says at one point in Surah Hadid, al Hadid, and we sent down iron. Which at first glance you wouldn't think anything of. You know, we sent down iron, okay, he sent down iron. But like, what does that mean? We sent down iron. And then we actually know today that the majority of the iron on the earth came from meteorites. The vast majority of iron that exists on the earth, some came from the core, but actually the majority came from stars that exploded and their insides kind of shot out into meteors and they landed on planet earth. So literally he sent it down <laughs> from the sky, subhanAllah. The Egyptians actually used to call iron the rock from the heavens, the ancient Egyptians because they most likely scholars say that they literally saw meteorites falling and mined those rocks for their own technological advancement, which they were a very advanced society. You understand? This subhanAllah, it's amazing. What I want to call out here is this. If God writes a book, this is just a very simple concept. If God writes a book, should that book ever contradict natural phenomena? No. That book should never contradict science and nature. Because the, if the one create, who created science and nature talks about science and nature, everything he says should be completely accurate. Does that make sense? So these are the kind of claims that we're testing. Does he accurately talk about the world around us? And in fact, he does. Not only do you not find any, um, or, or I'll say it like this, you do not find any, and Allah talks about the natural world many times. I mean, you will be very hard pressed to find a two page length of, not, of Allah not talking about the sun or the moon or the skies or the heavens or whatever, or the ants even, bugs, flowers, pollen, whatever. He talks about many things, many times. He uses it as a point to get us to believe. Not one of those times you see something that doesn't match with what we know about science. Because Allah knows more than we do about the natural world. So why would he be wrong about anything? A couple of other quick examples. The mountains, this is an easy one to understand. And we made the mountains as pegs. What's a peg? A peg is like, if you, have you been camping before? Anyone been camping before? So when you, when you pitch a tent, you have to like <coughs> knock the peg into the ground. Right, So that way the tent doesn't go off. And actually we know the mountains are actually, some of them are deeper underground than they are up in the sky. They literally call this the mountain's root. It roots deep in. Actually, I read a very beautiful quote that says, mountains are the nails that keep the earth together. Literally, waljibala utada. It's basically just saying waljibala utada in different words. Mountains are pegs, subhanAllah. And this is the last one of the natural, then I want to get into the fun stuff, inshallah. I'm not going to continue from there. This is in Surah Rum, the Surah of the Romans. What's really interesting here, Allah says that Rome has been defeated. And this, by the way, was a battle that the, the people of Mecca at the time were watching very closely. You know, because Mecca was a nothing city back in the day. And the two major empires of the world at the time were the Roman Empire, the Sassid Empire, and they fought for much of their life. And there was one specific battle that people were like, this is the end-all battle. It wasn't the end-all battle, people thought it was. So they were very curious what's happening. People were following the news. If they had Twitter, they'd be looking at it all the time, the same way we are right now, and they're following what's going on. And, and then the news reaches the city, Rome has been defeated. And then the surah dropped. Alif Lam Mim, Rome has in fact been defeated. But this is the weird part. This, people knew. This was weird. This was weird. In the lowest earth. That's weird language. Why would you say in the lowest earth? That's a weird thing to follow up. Rome has been defeated. 
Not even, by the way, in the lower earth, in literally the lowest earth. Edna is a superlative, meaning there is no earth lower than this earth I'm talking about. Where did this battle take place? That's called the Deep Sea Basin. Or I'm sorry, the Dead Sea, not Deep Sea, the Dead Sea Basin. They were as off the shores of the Dead Sea is where this battle happened. Rome was defeated. What's amazing, here's a translation, Rome is defeated in the lowest earth. That same location is actually by a lot. 440 meters below sea level is actually the topographically the lowest point of the world, of the earth, physically. So when Allah says they were defeated in the lowest earth, it was literally... Then the question, the classic question comes, how does someone from 7th century Arabia call this? <laughs> he called it like a thousand years ahead of time, or no, 1300 years, because we didn't discover this until maybe 50, 60 years ago. How does someone call this? How does someone call any of that stuff that I just mentioned? One last one I want to talk about. I don't have to read the ayah. Allah talks about the sun and the moon quite often. Yes, we're familiar with these. He talks about the sun and the moon often. But he never calls them the same word. He has a name for either of them. This is very interesting. He calls the sun a siraj. I won't translate that. I'll translate it in just a second. So he calls the sun a siraj. He calls the moon a munir. Okay, I'm going to start with this word first. Munir is just something that gives off light. It's just something that gives off light. It's like the basic word for something that's shining. It even actually just means to shine. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily mean you're giving off your own light. It just means to shine. Okay, Siraj though, it necessarily means a lamp. It's something that makes its own light. Like you light a, you light a lamp and you're holding it in the night back in the day. That's called a siraj, something that's burning and lighting everything up. The sun creates its own light. So it's appropriate to call it a siraj. Does the moon create its own light? No, the moon is, is, a, is a dead pale rock, but it mirrors light borrowed from the sun. That's why it illuminates the night is because it actually gets the light from the sun. It's, like a, it's basically a big mirror in the sky is what the moon is. And that's why it's never called siraj. The sun is never called munir. The moon is never called siraj accurately depicting what these two celestial bodies are doing and never crossing between the two. And they're not mentioned once or twice, they're mentioned multiple, multiple times. But never does he cross-reference the word SubhanAllah. Just precision, are you seeing this? It's just precise. Like the one speaking, at least you admit, he knows what he's talking about. If you don't want to go that far, he knows what he's talking about, right? I want to go into a few other examples that are maybe a little bit more new to you and this is more so not about like numbers and science and natural phenomena, but more about word choice and paying attention to what words are being used. What order are those words being used in? Why does Allah use this word and not that word? I want to preface this by saying the chosen uh, language for the Quran was what? What's the chosen language for this book? Arabic. Arabic, if you ever studied Arabic, is a very annoying language. Very annoying, alhamdulillah, subhanAllah. Very, 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 very annoying. Not our modern day the back-in-the-day classical Arabic that the Qur'an is referencing. Why is it? People, by the way, argue, is Air, classical Arabic harder to, under, to uh, learn or is Chinese harder to learn? Because there's so many intricacies in this, in this language. For example, just to kind of give paint a, a, at least somewhat of a picture here, yeah? There are over, I want to say 30, I think it's 20 or 30 words for the word camel. In English, we have camel. That's all we got. In Arabic, it's like, well, what's a camel doing? Is it walking? Is it eating? Is it using the bathroom? Is it kneeling down? Is it halfway kneeling down or all the way kneeling down? 
and they'll use a different word. Very precise. It has over 10 words for the word love, about 15 words for the word farmer. It's just precise. And that's just words, let alone past tense versus present tense or nouns versus verbs. It's, it gets insane. But I want to just call out the specificity of the language in and of itself was already insane, let alone when Quran came around. I want to give you just a couple of quick, easy examples. This is just, you know, again, naturally kind of said, it, it doesn't call much attention to itself, but I want to talk about it. Talk about it. It's very interesting. Very strange uses of words here, actually, from what's the intended meaning. Allah has not put two hearts within any man's body. What do you think this is talking about? Like on a spiritual sense, what do, what do you think this is? What is Allah saying here? Someone just shout out. What do you think Allah is talking about here? I have not put two hearts inside of a man. What does that mean? I'm going to wait. Someone's got to think with me here. Quran is a book of thought. Nope, not about two souls. Very good. So one, that's very good. One for, thank you, my wife, by the way, is the only one who, who answered. <laughs> guys, guys, I remind you, Allah, please, please listen. No, I'm being serious though. Quran is a book of thought. You need to think as questions. You need to try to understand, not just passively. You need to exercise yourself with it. Yeah, think about it. Anyway, yes, Allah is basically talking about hypocrites here, actually, even specifically. Can you have belief and disbelief in your heart at the same time? No, Allah did not put two hearts in any man. You cannot sidestep like, I'm going to be a believer today, disbeliever tomorrow. And this is a line, by the way, I'm not just dancing. This is, <laughs> I see you laughing at me. But anyway, you cannot choose both. Either you're a believer or you're not. Pick a side. I did not put two hearts for you to place on both sides and feel like you're safe. Do you understand? Which is deep. There's a lot to say about that. But the language here is strange. Because Allah, when he said, I did not put two hearts within any man's body, the two things that are weird here are the word man and body. Rajul isn't usually like this, used like this. Like Rajul literally means, by the way, a male, like not just man, like mankind. It literally means a male as opposed to a female. So who is he excluding by using the word Rajul? He's excluding women. Why would he exclude women? And then the second weird thing is fi jawfihi. You would expect, like here, finish the sentence. Allah didn't put two hearts inside of your, what? Chest. But he didn't say the word chest, he said jauf. Jauf means your entire body. So why would he exclude women, and why would he mention the whole body and not the chest? Does anyone get, does anyone get this? Did it? Women get pregnant. When women get pregnant, do they have one heart or two hearts eventually? Two. And is the second heart in the chest? It's somewhere in the body. <laughs> it could have been as simple as swapping this word with person, rajul, with person, and this with chest, and it would have been incorrect. That one by itself would have dismantled the entire book. Because what's the initial claim? If it was from other than Allah, you would have found a lot of what? What was the word? Contradictions, inconsistencies. Not one. Not even this. Little thing that's not stuff for a lot, little thing. This passively said thing, can you poke at? He was so precise, so nuanced, subhanAllah. Such amazing. Okay, this one, I love this one. This one also kind of has like a, a lot of emotionality behind this. You guys are familiar, you should be familiar with the story of Musa Yeah, You're familiar with Musa especially the struggle of his mother. 
who was a traumatized woman in the, uh, in the beginning of Musa Islam's life, truly traumatized. This, this ayah is actually about that trauma. And he basically talked, I'll just, well, I don't want to share it with you yet. Basically the story, I'm going to show you a specific ayah, but just to give you the story context here. Musa Islam is crying, the guards are coming, and then Allah tells the mother of Musa Islam to put him in the what? In the river. Put him in a basket, put the basket in a river. And she does so. And she walks away from the river, and then now Allah zooms in on her heart. Like Allah, sometimes he tells a story, you know, like cameras in movies and shows, they zoom in and zoom out. Allah does the same exact thing when he tells a story. The camera's out and then he zooms in on her walking and then he zooms in even closer to her heart. The only one that can zoom a camera into someone's heart is Allah when he tells a story, yeah? And then he says something strange. I'm going to tell you the English of this, but I'm, I'm going to replace the word heart with the Arabic. So if you see any Arabic, you don't need to know any Arabic for any of this, by the way, yeah, just to be super clear. If you see any Arabic, what does that Arabic word translate to? The word what? Heart. Okay? Here's the ayah. Hopefully that's clear because of the darkness. And the fu'ad of Moses' mother ached so much, it became farigan. Farigan means it was emptied out, like gutted like a fish. She was traumatized. Asbaha fu'ad ummi Musa farigan, subhanAllah. And the fu'ad, what does fu'ad mean again? Heart, thank you. And the fu'ad of Moses' mother ached so much that she almost gave away his identity, meaning she almost turned around and said, my baby, my baby. And she almost gave up, Yani, like she didn't, like nearly didn't trust Allah with, with this promise. Had we not reassured and tied down her qalb in order for her to be from the believers, what happened? What do both of these words mean that I told you? Heart. So why was fu'ad used and then qalb used? In the same sentence, by the way. You understand? In English, again, we have heart. So if you're reading a translation, it's heart and heart. It doesn't matter. But in the Arabic, there's like, there's a, probably a dozen words for heart. So why was fu'ad used and qalb used? By the way, I'll tell you this principle. Sometimes there's an expected use. So for example, if the word heart is used in Quran, the expected word is qalb, not fu'ad. Fu'ad is weird. Right away, if you read often, and we should all be reading often, you should be like, why is fu'ad used? Why Fu'ad? Why not call both times? Why not Fu'ad both times? Again, this is, I want to just, I'm trying to, I don't want to be too direct because you guys are intelligent, but I want to just tell you because I feel nervous that you're not getting my point. You get to ask these questions in the book. You get to ask questions like, why Fu'ad? Why not Qalb? Because the book is so stable and strong, you can freely ask these kind of questions and get amazing answers. And here's one such example. Fu'ad, or qalb, uh, now I'll talk about qalb in a bit. Qalb is the generic word for heart. Yeah, well, I already told you about qalb. Okay, fu'ad, what does fu'ad mean? Fu'ad is literally, it can be used as like, you know like when you're like roasting meat over a fire? That, fi that meat can then be called, while it's roasting, can be, all, can be called, excuse me, lahmun uh, fa'id. Meat that is burning. Burning, not just being cooked, because like, you know, not just heat waves, but it's in the fire. That's a fu'ad. Fu'ad is when you're super emotional, either super happy or super sad or super mad, then your heart is no longer a qalb, what is it? It's a fu'ad. It's emotional. So fu'ad in simple English is not just heart, it's the emotional burning heart. Burning with anger, burning with sadness. What emotion do you think she's feeling here if her heart is a fu'ad? Deep, deep sadness. It's like eating her alive. Fadigan, it's just eating her alive from the, it's as if the it's as if the picture here subhanAllah is so sad. As if the, the her heart was so much on fire that it starts burning away and, and now she's empty on the inside. Fadigan. It's, 
Allah talks is so beautiful. That's about Fu'ad al-Fatima. Anyway, that's not about what this is about. Anyway, I'm talking about Fu'ad al-Qalb. Okay. It makes sense that he used Fu'ad in the beginning because she's feeling, she's walking away from the river and she's feeling this intense emotional stress. And then after Allah says that we reassured her, her Fu'ad became what again? A normal Qalb. So when he provided the solution, Fu'ad came back to the regular Qalb. And by the way, Qalb means the thing that changes and turns. So when the heart changed, it became a qalb because hearts change. Subhanallah. Just precise word use here. You understand? Okay. Uh, this one I mentioned day one, two something months ago, two or three months ago, but I want to repeat it because there's a lot of new people here. There's something said uh, often in Quran, a phrase said, and that phrase is, Ya qawmi, my people, or you can say, oh my people. It's something that prophets say, usually prophets say, and are quoted to say in the Qur'an, when they're calling their people and trying to get them to believe, they're saying, Ya Qawmi, right? Ya Qawmi. Now, this phrase is said, uh, what, what was the number? It's over 30 times. It's said many, many times. Okay, so it's said over 30, dozens of times. Over 30, I think almost 40. But over 30 times at least, it's said, okay? And it's said by not just one prophet, but many, many prophets. Many prophets say Ya Qawmi in the Qur'an. Musa says it and... Saleh says it, and you know, Ibrahim says it, every, Lut says it, everyone says it. Every prophet is, I think every prophet pretty much says at some point in Quran, Ya Qawmi, you get the principle, yeah? They're just calling to their people, they're being quoted. There's this one surah, Surah 61. This is the fifth verse, and pay, pay attention to that. You have, وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِقَوْمِهِ يَا قَوْمِ I should have put the red, sorry, the red square over Ya Qawmi, but it doesn't matter, you're reading the English anyway. It's just very, you know, casual. And when Musa salam, says to his people, my people. Simple, yeah? The very next verse talks about Isa salam, Jesus. You would expect the same language. Because both verses are talking about Musa and Isa on two separate occasions, yelling something to their people. So you would expect in the next verse, وَإِذْ قَالَ عِيسَى لِقَوْمِهِ يَا قَوْمِ Because it's telling the same story. But you don't find that. Here's what you find. وَإِذْ قَالِ عِيسَى بَنُ مَرْيَمْ يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ When Isa السلام, the son of Mary, pay attention to that. He's Jesus, the son of Mary, because he's of the virgin birth. He does not have a father, right? When Jesus, the son of Mary said, يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ Children of Israel. You know what's very strange about this? Every prophet you'll find saying Ya Qawmi except for one. Isa salam never says Ya Qawmi. He always says Ya Bani Israel, children of Israel, Israelites, because he was sent to the Jews. Yeah? Why is that? According to the Quran, your lineage comes from which side of your family, your father or your mother? Your father. So if you're like, I'm Palestini, not because my mother's Palestinian, but because who's Palestinian in my, in my family? My father. So therefore, that's the lineage that I take, primarily. Does that make sense? And that makes sense for Musa, because he's Bani Israeli himself. So he can say, my people, because his father is from that nation. Who's Aisha's father? He doesn't have one. So for him to call upon anyone saying, the people where my father is from would be completely inappropriate. He's never once quoted to say, Ya Qawmi, because he has no father. It's very specific. One slip of the tongue of this man, Muhammad saying, Ya Qawmi, talking about Isa, and the whole Quran would be disproved. 
So again, I want to make sure we finish as much as possible because I don't want to do a second session of this. I want to just hopefully have one recorded session where we, we hopefully get the point across. You might see me skip a couple examples just to kind of you know, get to the juicier ones towards the end. There's one especially that I'm really excited to show you. So anyway, here's, an, here's one more, inshallah, this morning. You guys ready? You feeling good? Yeah? Okay, good. Good, good, good. There are many words in the Quran used for to instruct someone or to give someone advice. A lot of words. One word used is wasa uh, 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 or awsa, those words, like wasiya. It just means to instruct someone, to give someone advice. This word has two kind of forms. Uh, I only see Asil, who used to be, Irminas was also in that class. You guys remember like family two, family four, yeah? These are the same words, but in different forms. You, they even, even if you don't know Arabic, they sound really similar. Awsa, wasa. They sound very, you see like the W, the S, and the A sound. They sound very similar to each other. But there's a very nuanced meaning here. I want to call out, in modern day Arabic, it doesn't matter what you say. Wasa, awsa, it doesn't really matter. But back in the day, and especially in Quran, it super, super matters. Allah does not say anything by mistake. He doesn't say anything because he just doesn't think about it. He talks with precision. So here we have wasa and awsa both being used in the book. Wasa is used more often than this one. What do these mean? Both of them mean to instruct, right? Like up here, he has instructed me. They both mean to instruct. What's the difference though between them if they both mean to instruct? One main difference is awsa, and this is really the one I want you to keep in mind. Awsa means to instruct all at once. Like if there was a lesson and I sat you here and I just gave you the full lesson, that's awsa. He gave it to you all at once. If I broke apart the lesson and gave it to you like, you know, this week and next week and the week after, that's not awsa anymore because there's more than one. Now it is wasa. Both mean he instructed, but you can see it's like the number of times that it's done is behind the meaning of the word. This is how specific you can really guess, subhanAllah, with this language and especially in Quran. Now, now comes the question of when is awsa used in the Quran? When is wasa used in the Quran? This is really interesting. Elsa is only used, I'm going to say for now, for one thing. The instruction, Wasa is used for many things. Elsa is only used for actually one thing, and that one thing is inheritance. Why is that appropriate? How many times does someone die to give off inheritance? One time, so Elsa is used. But in Wasa, it's used for moral instruction, spiritual instruction. Like for example, he instructs you to pray. Wasa would be used because you don't pray once. You pray how many times? Yeah, and you don't know. You know you don't perfect salah from the first time. You keep on going. You try to perfect all that kind of stuff. So for for moral, for religious, for spiritual guidance, wasa is used because you do it continuously. Okay. So whenever someone is given advice, you should pray. Wasa is used. There's only one exception. This is really interesting. Ready? There's one exception to this rule. Isa when he is born. You know, Jesus said, he spoke from the cradle. He was born and then he spoke to the people. You know this, right? In Surah Maryam. We believe that he spoke straight out the womb. And he said something interesting. He said, وَأَوْصَانِي He's talking about Allah, this baby, zakati, And he instructed me with salah and zakah. The problem with that is this. We would expect if prayer and zakat is mentioned, this should be used because do you give zakat once? No. And do you pray only once? No. So it should be wasa. Why in the world was this baby saying, awsani bisalati, if this is something you were instructed to do many times? 
How many times can a baby be instructed if he's just born? Is the one time. He hasn't lived long enough for there to be like a wasa continuously being advised. He was only advised one time, subhanAllah, alayhi salam. So Elsa is used. Even when like the rule breaks, this is also kind of going back to anchors that we talked about, right? Sometimes there's expected language and all of a sudden Allah breaks the expected language. Like here you're like, that doesn't belong there. Why is he saying Elsa? And then the more you think about it, the more you realize how precise it is, subhanAllah, right? That the baby would say Elsa. It's very appropriate for him to do so. Okay. This one's interesting. Um... If you've read through Quran even a little bit, you'll see that Allah pairs His name sometimes. Like He'll say, and Allah is Ghafoorun Rahim, and Allah is Ghafoorul Wadud, Ar Rahman Rahim, right? Like these kind of, He puts pairs in His name sometimes. One that is said very, very often is Al Ghafoor Al Rahim. Al Ghafoor means the forgiving, Ar Rahim means the merciful, okay? And it makes a lot of sense that this is put in this order because we believe, for example, like after, think about after death. First, you're forgiven for your sins and then Allah gives you mercy. That's the order of the way things happen is first Allah forgives you. So Al-Ghafood is mentioned first. And then Allah has, God has mercy on you. And then you enter Jannah because of that mercy. But that's the order. You, you aren't given mercy until you're, forg- you're given what? Forgiveness. Or even there's even a general, general principle in Islam is you remove harm before you provide benefit. So you remove the sins before you provide benefit. Does that make sense? Now, this combination in this order, Ghafoor and Rahim, is mentioned uh, about 60 times. So this is the expected language. There is one time, and oh, another thing is humans are being mentioned in this example, which makes sense, because it's humans that get forgiven. Rocks don't get forgiven. Rocks don't do anything wrong. Humans get forgiven, and then humans are given mercy after that. So does this make sense? What's the normal order? Forgiveness, mercy. Al-Ghafoor, Al-Rahim. Okay? One time, this gets broken. In, 34, in Surah 34 and 2, you see this. He knows what goes into the earth, and what emerges from it, and what descends from the sky, and what ascends into it, and he is Al-Rahim, Al-Ghafoor. That's weird. That shouldn't be in that order. That's never in that order. This is the only time in the book this order is broken, by the way. The Ghafoor Rahim order, the forgiving merciful order, that expected order. This is the only one time that that order is broken. Why is it broken here? See, and by the way, are human beings mentioned here? No. Human beings are not explicitly mentioned here. Like what goes into, what goes into the earth? Seeds go into the earth. You know? What emerges from it? Plants emerge from it, right? What descends from the sky is rain, and what goes back into the sky is water vapor. So he's talking about nature, right? But if you look a little bit closer, especially at our philosophy, human beings also go into the earth. When they what? When they die. And they emerge from it when? Judgment day. That's why Allah compares us a lot, by the way, to like plants and trees actually in the Quran. Because it's like when you look at the... the you know, the summer turning into the fall to the winter and the spring, you're supposed to be thinking of your own life passing by, not just the seasons around you, right? But anyway, and then what descends from the sky? Revelation also descends from the sky. Revelation also descends from the sky. And what ascends to it, into it? Literally, your soul also after your death ascends, right? We even have a hadith where the soul ascends to every gate in the heavens and has permission to go up to Allah to get judgment, actually. 
right? Or even your deeds also ascend every day into the sky to, 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 for Allah to review every single day. So human beings in a way are actually being mentioned. And this actually makes sense with this pattern break. When you're dead and you're dealing with the, pun- dealing, not with the punishment, dealing with the scary reality of the grave, what comes to mind first, forgiveness or mercy? Rahma comes first. You want mercy before forgiveness. But when you're raised, what comes first, mercy or forgiveness? Forgiveness. When you descend into the sky, or sorry, what descends, descends from the sky, Quran is actually called a Rahmah. It's a mercy on mankind. And what ascends into it, again, you, do you, I'm sorry, ascend back into it, you ascend back into it, and so do your deeds, which what comes to mind when your deeds go up? Forgiveness. So when he kind of switches the order of what he's talking about, right, that, merciful, that mercy and then forgiveness happens, he switches his name order. Merciful forgiveness. It, it, with the context, it makes sense that he switched the, 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 the expected order, subhanAllah. It's amazing. Another one, I'm going to go over this one really quickly. There are two times in Quran where Allah commands us not to kill our children. Now, what, this might seem like, why is this even being said? Uh, number one, think about the context of who this was revealed to, right? The people in, uh, in the desert, they did have a habit of killing their own children. Not to get too deep into it, but we also have a habit of killing our own children. But anyway, so Allah does say twice in Quran, do not kill your own children. Yes, do not kill your own children. They would literally like, the child would be born, they throw them in a ditch. Like it would be that very late stage abortion, you can say, yes? Anyway, this is two times where Allah commands, don't kill your children. You'll notice between these two, so the first one is you do not kill your children out of poverty. We will provide for you and for them. The second time, do not kill your children out of fear of poverty. We will provide for them and for you. Two things change between these two. What's the first thing that changed? Huh? Yeah, the fear. The first one didn't mention fear. It's just out of poverty. The second one was not out of poverty. It was out of fear of poverty. The second change is we provide for you and for them, got twisted. Now it's, we provide for them and for you. So why this change? This, I, I love that you get to ask these kind of questions. First of all, the, what's highlighted in red right now, or underlined in red, kind of gives you a timeline. If you are thinking about killing your kids out of poverty, you're already in poverty because you're thinking about killing them out of poverty. If you're killing your children out of fear of poverty, are you in No. So this is happening right now. This is fear for the, because fear is about the future. Fear is not about the present, it's about the future. That's anxiety is about the future. So that's number one. This one is already in, in poverty. This one is fearing poverty. So it makes sense then that if you're in poverty, we're going to provide for you because you're feeling the hunger now too and for them. Whereas if you're fearing, you're thinking about, should I just kill my kid out of, out of fear of poverty for the future? He says, no, I'll provide for them and for you. So the expected language shifts subhanAllah. You see how that works? So because of the different stage that they're in, he switches the language. We're going to skip this one a little bit. Um, and we'll do this one really quickly. What time is it? Okay. We'll, actually, we're going to skip this one. I'm going to skip this one. Purify my house. This is very interesting. This is a quote, or this is Allah telling uh, Ibrahim a.s. in Baqarah. Okay? Ibrahim a.s. in Baqarah. Where Allah says, We commanded Ibrahim and his son Ismail, Purify my house for those who circle it. Pay attention to the for those who. There's four of them. So pay attention to this. Purify my house. By the way, what's his house? 
the Kaaba. This is talking about the Kaaba in Mecca, yeah? Purify my house for those who circle it, those who seclude themselves for worship, those who bow, like Rukua, when you bow, and those who prostrate, meaning you make sujud, you go down to the floor. Okay? So four things are being mentioned. When you think about how often these things happen, like why, one question that comes to my mind is why this order? Why not say those who seclude themselves, then those who circle it, then those who prostrate, then those who bow? Why this order? If you think about the logic, logical progression of this order, the things he mentioned, purify my house for those who circle it. Where can you circle it? Where do you have to be to do that? So it's very limited to that location. Very, very limited to that location. So that happens the least often on the list. Right? Those who seclude themselves, can you always seclude yourself? No. But can you find a place to seclude yourself more easily than packing your bags and going to, going to Mecca? Yeah. So this happens a little more often. Then, this is really cool. Then Rukua is mentioned. Bowing down is mentioned. When you bow, bowing down happens all the time. It can, you can be in seclusion, you can be at the Kaaba, you can be at your house, you can be at the mall, you can be anywhere, and you're doing ruku, you're bowing down. So it happens even more often. But what, hap, what occurs twice as much as bowing down, because in Salah you do sujud twice as much, you do two sajdas for every one raka. So there's a logical progression in what's being said here. It's going from the least likely to happen to most likely, the way that it's speaking, subhanAllah. So sometimes you see this logical progression in the language. You know, this is very interesting, by the way, like when Allah gives a list of things, it's good to ask like, well, why is this, is it importance? Is it a number? You know, what's it, like, why is it given in this order, subhanAllah? Okay, this one's really cool, easy to appreciate. Allah at one point says, وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ And as for your master, glorify him, exalt him. Very simple thing that's being said. It's one of the first things revealed in Quran, actually, is وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ What's really interesting about this is if you break up the letters, it start, like wow is just the start of a new sentence, by the way, so you can ignore the wow, this, this beginning one. But if you break apart the letters, it actually makes a palindrome. It starts with a ra, ends with a ra. I also put like ra is just the r sound, right? So just if you don't know the Arabic, that's fine. Second letter is a ba. Second to last is a ba. Third letter is a kaf. Third to last is a kaf. Faz in the middle. Remember how we started like structure overall? This is like a mini specific version of like a ring structure, subhanAllah. Which again, the challenge becomes, like here's, again, bringing it back to the, the initial idea. Go ahead and say something that means the same thing backwards and forwards off the top of your head. That means something. You can't just tell me race car. Like something that means something. Something that guides people for the rest of humanity, subhanAllah. That's pretty wild that this just happened off the top of his head. That he spoke a palindrome, right? This is, by the way, the word for this is actually a palindrome, something that's spelled the same way backwards and forwards. There's one more that I know of at least. This is my favorite one. وَكُلٌ فِي فَلَكٍ يَسْبَحُونَ This means they are all, they, he's talking in this ayah about the sun and the moon and like night and day and everything. And he says they are all swimming in orbit. Talking about the celestial bodies, the planets and all of that, right? وَكُلٌ فِي فَلَكٍ يَسْبَحُونَ Pay attention to كُلٌ فِي فَلَك You get another palindrome. But hold on, I want to explain something really fast. Kaf, kaf, lam, lam, fa, fa, ya in the middle. Do you guys see that? Those of you who read Arabic also, you see that in the original language too, I hope. You see that? What's really cool about this, what's the middle letter? The, the yeah, the Y sound, right? 
the word that means to orbit starts with that letter. So it's orbiting around the letter that the next word means to orbit. The, it starts with that letter, subhanAllah. Does this make sense? SubhanAllah. Okay. Do we have time for this one? I think so. Ears of grain. This is talking, this is very, really interesting. So in English, you have like the singular, right? Like if I want to say chair, I say chair. If I'm talking about two or more chairs, what do I say? I say chairs. You have plural. English is very simple. Singular and plural. In Arabic, you have like a lot of shades of plurality. And I want to kind of mention this a little bit, okay? So those of you who speak Arabic, you know this, right? Like that there's, it's, there's some plurals that are lesser than other plurals. So I'll, I want to give you one example. Oops. No, no. So one ear of grain. So like when you grow grain and you pluck one out the ground, that one ear is called a sunbula. That's just one. You don't need to memorize these. Just let, let me get to the point. This is not what we're actually talking about. This is just like the singular version. Sumbula is just one ear of grain. The plural of this is sumbulat. Right? Sumbulat. You just add the at sound at the end and all of a sudden you're talking about more ears of grain. If you want to talk about a large amount like heaps and heaps and heaps of grain, you don't use sumbulat, you use sanabil. Sanabil means many ears. Actually, you can argue even like basic Arabic students know this one is probably talking about three to nine ears of grain. That's all it's talking about. Like literally it's, re it's reduced down to over three, under nine. But if you want to talk about many, 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 uh, a lot of grain, you use the word sanabir. Are you with me so far? Those two plurals, pay attention to them. There are two parts in Quran where either of these two are being mentioned, these two plurals. So both Sumbulat, uh, ears of grain, Sanabil, ears of grain. Keep in mind the English just calls them ears of grain. It's not like it's going to call out, hey, this one's a super plural, right? It's just going to call it ears of grain. There are two times, and even for the same number, that Allah uses a plural for ear of grain. The first time is in uh, Surah Yusuf. If you remember the king's dream in Surah Yusuf, he has a dream of like, like, you know, seven fat cows eating seven skinny cows and seven ears of grain. He has a dream of seven ears of grain. Who remembers what that dream meant from, that, from the story of Yusuf Alayhi What did that dream mean when he had that dream? What is it? Yeah, yeah. So basically he has a, he's having a dream of a famine coming. Like there's not going to be a lot of food. We have to be careful with our food. That's what the dream meant. And Yusuf Alayhi came and kind of economically solved that problem, right? So there's famine happening in this ayah. The other time that's being said, where ears of grain is being used, is talking about donating. Allah says that you donating is like an ear of grain, and each bud of that grain is even, it's multiplied by 10. So there's a lot of kathra here. There's like a lot of stuff happening. When you donate even $1, basically it's as if you donated $100, $1,000. Allah, every single penny counts as his own dollar type of deal, right? So there's a lot happening here. But in both ayahs, this one, sumbulat, is used, the smaller plural. This one, sanabil, is used, the stronger plural. So this is smaller and this is bigger. But they both mean ears of grain. And they're both, by the way, talking about seven ears of grain. So it's the same number. If it's the same number, why does one use the smaller plural, one use the bigger plural if it's the same number? Actually, people would call this a mistake. 
Why would he use one if they're, they're both seven? So why use the regular and then why use the stronger one in another? Actually, it's because of what's being talked about. Here, what's being talked about is a famine. So it makes sense to use the smaller one. Because they're seven, but they're scarce. And here, he's talking about when you donate and you have seven, but they actually count like 700, 7,000. So here, the super plural is being used, Sanabil. So even the type of plurality being used, SubhanAllah, makes a big difference. Okay. You guys good with me so far? I think I have two and we'll be done. But these are two kind of longer ones, so I want you to pay attention here. Uh, we talked about anchors. Who can remind me what an anchor is? What's an anchor in the Quran? Who remembers? Who can explain what an anchor is? Yeah, hi guys. You're here every time. I know you should know. Who can describe me what it is, please? Somebody, so my feelings aren't hurt, Yanni. A scene? It's like a word or a phrase that shows up in multiple places that connects the text. Very good. Sometimes Allah basically, in a nutshell, He repeats things, so He'll use one word and use it again a little bit later, or maybe a phrase, and use that same phrase later, maybe the same, maybe different, and the idea is anchoring back to the first time it's being said. Remember in Baqarah, I pointed arrows towards words that were repeated? Do you guys remember that? That took me like an hour to do. I hope you remember that. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not, but I'm joking. Anchors are when Allah calls your attention to different things from different parts of the book. That's basically what an anchor is, okay? This is really interesting. I want to I talk to you about the anchor between Musa and Yusuf. These are two prophets, Moses and Joseph. This is very interesting. Specifically Yusuf. Joseph in the Quran is mentioned 20, this is not a not numer, numerical thing, it's just something interesting. I had to look this up myself. Uh, Yusuf is mentioned 27 times in the book, in total. 25 of those times is in his chapter, because he's the only prophet with his own chapter, where like beginning to end, it's all about him, right? Like he's the only prophet that gets that. So it makes sense that the majority of his name being used is in his own chapter. But then that leaves these two pesky times that are not in his chapter, that he is mentioned somewhere else in the Qur'an. And you find something interesting about it. First one we see is in, that I want to call out to is in Ghafir. This is, by the way, during the story of Musa. This is how we're going to tie them together. Musa, السلام, he comes back to Egypt. People are freaking out. People are questioning the Pharaoh. And then if we find out that actually among the Pharaoh's cabinet, like his posse, right, his, uh, his elected officials, one of them was secretly Muslim the whole time. And then in Ghafir, it's beautiful. I recommend you reading it. This dude who was secretly Muslim, un working for the Pharaoh, by the way, secretly Muslim, really makes you think of like even Israel. Like I wonder who's there. You know what I mean? With like Netanyahu or whatever, subhanAllah. Like who knows who's in there? You know, not everyone's the same. But anyway, this dude, may Allah reward him, stands up and it's just, because this is after Fir'aun said, I'm going to kill him myself. The Pharaoh stands up, I'm going to kill Musa myself. And then this dude stands up, Mishra just gives a khutbah to Pharaoh to his face in his meeting room. He probably was killed for this. But Allah captures that story, that khutbah, and gives it to us in the 40th surah in Surah Ghafir. He mentions something in it that's weird. And Yusuf came to you people before too. So he's tying what's happening now to which prophet? Yusuf alayhi salam. The other time that Yusuf is mentioned is a, basically it's just a list of prophets and he's mentioned by guess who? Well, Yusuf, well, Musa. 
So whenever Yusuf is mentioned outside of Surat Yusuf, who is necessarily involved? Musa. And if you understand anchors, because this is an anchor, like why is Allah tying these two things together? Then the mind has to start thinking, what's the similarities between who and who? Yusuf and Musa. So let's talk about some similarities. This is really cool. I'm getting this from all over. This, by the way, there's, I want to just call out, there's literally dozens, if not over a hundred. I just picked my favorite ones, okay? Musa salam, his story begins with a mother and her child. Yusuf's story begins with a father and his child. Both are little kids. One, the mother is being highlighted. One, the father is being highlighted. Pay attention to that gender difference, by the way, because that comes up a lot. It comes up a lot when you think about these stories. The next one, the mother places him in the river because she hated her? She hated him? No, places him in the river because out of love. The sons, the other brothers of Yusuf, throw him in a well out of love, out of hatred. Different bodies of water, different intentions, but they're both thrown in bodies of water. Both receive, both parents, yani, like the mother of Musa and the, and the father of Yusuf Yaqub receive a promise from Allah, they're going to get returned to you soon. Both parents get that. In Musa story, his only sister, he only has one sister, his only sister helps him. In Yusuf's story, his numerous brothers try to harm him, try to get rid of him. So one female versus many women, I'm sorry, one female versus many men. The one female helps, the numerous brothers uh, try to harm. In both stories, there's a king that has a dream. The Pharaoh has a dream that a, a child of the, of the Jews will go up and overthrow him. The dream of Yusuf salam is that famine that we talked about earlier, right? Musa salam, when he was a baby, was received by a good woman, the wife of the Pharaoh, and presented to an evil, disgusting man who was who? the Pharaoh himself. Whereas Yusuf was received by a good man and shown to an evil woman. The same woman that tries to, that basically sexually harasses him later on in the story, right? And Musa he's reunited in the palace after a short time with his family, like in the same day, he was reunited with his mother in the palace of the Pharaoh. Whereas Yusuf they're reunited in that same palace, but it's not the same day, it is many, many years later. You see? Are you seeing the comparisons and contrasts with this, subhanAllah? It's like when Allah anchors, really, you have to think about the similarities and contrasts between the two. Musa said, when he grew up to full age, he was granted wisdom, knowledge, and strength. And this is, by the way, literally ver- verbatim said, right? That Allah says that, um, When he grew up and became strong, we gave him wisdom and knowledge. That same phrase almost is said over here in Surah Yusuf, when he grew to full age, he was granted wisdom and knowledge, but he didn't have strength, he had beauty. So both had wisdom and knowledge, one had strength, one had beauty. Both of these men were tested with their unique quality. Musa his strength killed the man, and he was tested with that. Yusuf was given amazing beauty, we know that he was like the most beautiful who ever lived, and he was tested with that same beauty with the, with the wife of the Aziz. Okay? Musa salam, didn't go for jail for a crime he did actually commit. Yusuf salam, went to jail for a crime he didn't commit. <laughs> SubhanAllah. Musa salam, obviously he ran away from home, right? Like he ran away before the cops could get him basically after he committed that crime, after he made that mistake. Musa salam, was pursued by a woman through legitimate means. 
This is actually the only marriage proposal in the book. If, I don't know if you guys know this. The only story where someone proposes to someone else is Musa salam's wife proposing to him. Actually, it's like a woman that makes a proposal, technically. Okay? And then in Yusuf salam, there was a similar pursuant, but it wasn't legitimate. He's pursued by a woman through illegitimate means. And we know the story of like the, the, wife, the wife of the Aziz trying to capture him and do what, do what she wanted to do with him. You guys remember that? Okay. The story for Musa starts in Egypt and ends with an exodus. Yusuf starts outside of Egypt and ends inside of Egypt. So even the setting is flipped. And I, I probably can't read that bottom one. But you see the similarities between the two? Like how when Allah specifically calls out and ties Yusuf to Musa, how when you dig a little bit deeper, like this is why I want to show you guys this stuff, is that it's not just something cool to see, but when you really use it and you dig a little bit deeper, you find amazing things in this book. If you know what to look for. Does that make sense? Okay. I have 10 minutes left. I figured that I wouldn't be able to get to everything I want to talk about. I want to talk about one last thing though. And that's going to be around Surah Fatiha. And I need you to pay attention closely. This is 10 minutes left, right? 10 minutes left. Okay. Wake up, everyone. Shake a little bit. Wake up. This is really interesting. I chose this one. I really actually am kicking myself for choosing this one. Because I want to someday really talk about Fatiha in depth with you guys. Not anytime soon. Maybe next Ramadan or something. And really just go at it in depth with you because Fatiha is, you know, it's obviously the most repeated surah in existence. It's a very special surah. And it is really, it's all you need if you, if you know what it's telling you, okay? But this is one little tidbit about the balance of Fatiha that I really want to talk to you about. But first, I want to explain something to you. At the top, I have like verbs versus nouns. I want to explain this to you. A verb is like an action. You, even in English, we have verbs and nouns, right? A verb is an action. So a verb is like, he ran, he is running, he will run. Is a verb permanent? No, because it happens and then it's done. I ran, it happened, I'm not running right now, it's done, right? Versus a noun, especially, in, this is kind of the, sake, the, the case for English, but especially in Arabic, guys, you, and especially in Quran, using a verb versus a noun is a huge difference. I wish I had more examples, I just, time escaped, but... It's a huge, huge, huge difference, okay? A verb is temporary, it's set in time. So just think, verb, temporary, but a noun is permanent. Like in Arabic, calling, saying someone ran versus calling him a runner is two totally different things. Like that man is a runner, he's permanently a runner. That's a more permanent quality. So the, in summary, when you think of verb, you think of what quality? Temporary. When you think of noun, you think of? Permanent, thank you. Temporary, permanent, okay. We have Fatiha. This is not a very long surah. I want to break it up for you. Uh, before I do, Allah actually himself commented on Fatiha. I don't know if you guys know this, in the Hadith Qudsi. Hadith Qudsi, by the way, is not Quran. It's Allah revealing to Prophet ﷺ, but it's not Quran. So the Prophet ﷺ was taught something by Allah, and then he taught it in his own words. So therefore, if it's not Allah's direct words, it's not Qur'an, right? So it's just hadith qudsi. But anyway, so Allah actually comments on Fatiha, God comments on Fatiha himself. And he actually sort of splits it in half. That the first part is for me, and the second part is for my slaves. That's what Allah says about Fatiha. The first part is for me, meaning it's for Allah. The second part is for us. So part one of Fatiha is for Allah, part two is for us. But I actually want to break it apart into those two halves and give you the middle of it. Okay, so that's what I'm going to do next. This part 
All praise and thanks is for God, the master of all nations, the extremely and ever merciful, the owner of the day of judgment. Who is the only one being mentioned here? Is Allah. So it makes sense it's for him, right? That makes a lot of sense that this, is, this part is for Allah. Because he's the only one being mentioned, he's the one being praised and talked about. So that makes sense. You following me so far? First part is for Allah. I want to skip the middle for now. I'm going to skip the middle. Look at the, second, the third part here. Guide us to the straight path, the path of those you have favored, nor those who have earned, uh, not those who have earned your anger, nor the people who are lost. Is that about Allah? No, who's that about? That's about us. So the third part is for us. First part is for Allah. Third part is for humanity, right? He split it in half. You see how like he put whatever. When he commented on this, translates you alone, you alone we worship, you alone we ask for help from. Okay. He made a really amazing comment. That comment was, this is between me and my servant. Okay. When he, when he, he went literally ayah by ayah. And for these ayahs, he said, this is for Allah. For these, or this is for myself. For these ayahs, he said, this is for my slave. And for this ayah, what did he say? It's between me and my slave, meaning it's for both of us. Are you following me so far? I want to call out one other thing. This is obviously not an ayah breakdown because this is three ayahs and this is, I, th- I think, just the one, right? But anyway, this is a full sentence. This is a full sentence. And this is a full sentence. I want to call that out. So Fatiha, although it's seven ayat, it's how many sentences? Three sentences. And just to review one more time, because I'm going to get a little bit more complicated here. You guys ready? The first sentence is for who again, everybody? The last sentence is for who? Humanity. The middle sentence, the second sentence is for who? For both of us. Okay. Here's where we get wild. This is insane to me. Insane to me. In Arabic, do you remember? There are, Hanan, I hope you remember. There are two, Amen. there are two sentences, two types of sentences in Arabic. There's only two. Every sentence ever spoken falls under one of two buckets, two types. There are noun sentences and verb sentences. Simple enough. How do you tell between the two? Just by whatever it starts with. If it starts with a noun, what kind of sentence is it? A noun sentence. If it starts with a verb, what kind of sentence is it? A verb sentence. Which sentence do you think is more permanent than the other? The noun sentence is more permanent because nouns are more permanent. Does that make sense? So noun sentences are permanent, verb sentences are temporary. Okay. Now, I want to call out what kind of sentences are these? Alhamdulillah. Alhamd is the first. Because remember, we judge it by the first word, right? Alhamd. Praise and thanks. Is that a noun or a verb? That's a noun. So the first one is a noun sentence. We're not, I'm not commenting. I'm just, we want to point this out. Let's skip the second one. Go to the last one again. Ihdina, guide us. That's a command, which is a type of verb. So this last one is a verb sentence. I want to call out how much this makes sense. The permanent sentence is for who? Because he's what? Permanent. The verb sentence is, or down here, this last one is for us, and it's a verb because we are also temporary. So he gave a permanent sentence for the permanent being, a temporary sentence for temporary beings. 
That's, that's pretty wild, subhanAllah. What about this middle one? This one is very strange. I don't want to go into the grammar of it, but this iyaka is super, super strange language. Iya is not really used like this. It's, a, it's kind of a rule break. But essentially, this middle sentence kind of breaks the rule. It's both. Both a noun and a verb sentence, which makes sense because who's it for? Both us and Allah. So he uses a noun sentence for Allah, a verb for us, and he breaks the rules and makes it both when it comes to the one that's, that's for both of us, subhanAllah. I hope I showed you good enough examples today about the precision of the Qur'an. I want to end it with what we began with, is this ayah, أَفَلَا يَتَدَبَّرُونَ الْقُرْآنَ وَلَوْ كَانَ مِنْ عِنْدِ غَيْرِ اللَّهِ لَوَجَدُوا فِيهَا اِخْتِلَافًا كَثِيرًا Haven't they reflected on the Qur'an if they found it to be from other than Allah, they would have found many contradictions, inconsistencies in it. This book, subhanAllah, is so nuanced and so precise that whatever question you ask comes with some reasonable, amazing answer. Like my wife and I are currently, just to give you an example, because this is like, this happens in real life. And even in the English, by the way, I, I challenge you to test this out. We are studying Surah Al-Kahf, my wife and I. We've been studying for like a month and a half or an ayah three, so it's taking a while. But we're studying Surah Al-Kahf in, in some depth. And Allah says something in Kahf, He says about the people of Jannah. They stay in it forever. The weird thing about this is this is the only time that word is used like that in the book. Anytime Allah talks about the people of Jannah or the people of Jahannam, He says, They stay in it forever. The word there is Khalid. This is the only time in the Quran Allah says, It still means they stay in it forever, but why was Makith used? You understand the question? I'm not going to tell the answer. I found out today, but I'm not going to tell the answer. But it's so, we were just talking about how amazing is it that we can ask questions like that. How amazing is that, subhanAllah. And that's what I'm really hoping that you guys kind of get. This stuff, again, is not just for fun or to show you, look how amazing this is. That's part of it. That's obviously one, one wing. But the other wing is also, you should be thirsty to reflect about this, hungry to reflect about the Qur'an. One benefit I shared with you about structure is that it helps you memorize and it helps you Understand the point of a surah better. One really key benefit of precision and asking questions is that you get to ask certain questions that lead to very profound realizations, lead to some pretty miraculous results. So, in some, so, uh, and that's, that's it for precision. Next session is going to be what, the 30th, Qais? So the 30th. So the next time that I'm going to be here for Tanzil is going to be the 30th, inshallah. We're going to talk about the impact and we're going to wrap up this idea of the miracle of the Quran. Impact meaning what did it do to the world? That's what we're going to talk about next session, inshallah. May Allah reward you guys, and we'll see you guys next time. Salam. We'll see you, inshallah.